0: Well, welcome to Christ Community Church this morning. Please have a seat. It is great to have you here today uh, as we celebrate a special Sunday on the church calendar. Today is Palm Sunday. We are one week from Easter, uh, the, the great celebration of the resurrection of our Lord, and we are excited as Easter approaches to, to celebrate that one more time uh, this year. Now, before we get started this week, we've got a few things to cover. I wanted to go ahead and and give you guys a brief update on where we are on our lead pastor search. My name is Brent Stanfield. I'm one of the elders here. I am not the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. And we are in the midst of a lead pastor search. And it is going very well. I have a lot of good things to report. Several weeks ago, Scott Patterson and I, one of the other elders here, met with the uh, pastoral search committee and we got a chance to see the great work that they are doing as we uh, engage in a pastoral search and uh, they have finalized the process several weeks ago we we sat with them and we looked at the process that they had developed and we made a few slight tweaks and adjustments here and there but it, is, it was by by most accounts ready to go And uh, they have been, over the last several weeks now, executing on that process. So the process has been complete in terms of what we are trying to accomplish, and now it is just a matter of accomplishing it and seeing God work as that process works its way through. And so I just want to give you a little bit of an update on where we are. Uh, We have received uh, several resumes, about eight resumes, eight candidates uh, uh, sent resumes in over the last several months to put their name into the hat as the, for the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. The uh, Pastoral Search Committee has evaluated those resumes and has pre-qualified several of them, and they are now in the process of sending out an application uh, to each of those candidates who were already pre-qualified so those uh, candidates can provide some additional information to the Pastoral Search Committee and to the elders so that we can continue to evaluate them. And once that is done, you're going to see here in the next uh, probably several weeks, months, uh, some, some candidates who, who may uh, uh, appear. Um, interviews will be had. You may even have a guest preacher, maybe one, maybe two. And uh, then what we'll have in, in hopefully a very short amount of time is a lead candidate uh, for the lead pastor position here at Christ Community Church. So we are excited about that to be on the cusp of, of finding our new leader here at the church. It's an exciting time as we get ready for that. At some point, at some times, you know, I know at this season of the church, it feels like it's the darkest part of the night. Uh, and I've, I've referenced that to several people that we've, we've been without a lead pastor for almost six months now, and uh, it, it feels like it's the darkest part of the night. But the dawn is just around the corner And I know our pastoral search committee has just done a phenomenal job getting us to the point where we are now, and we are excited about the things that are to come. So, uh, I hope you're excited about that. It is an answer to God's prayer to see us move this ball forward, and I know we're excited to see where He will take it in the near future. Now, as we consider who's going to lead this church in the years to come, I don't want us to forget, I don't want us to forget that we already have a lead pastor. We already have a king that we worship, and today it is, the, is the Sunday in the church calendar where we celebrate Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem as He prepares for His passion, for His time to go to the cross. This is Palm Sunday, and it is the, uh, it is the Sunday where we celebrate Jesus arriving into Jerusalem And it's a great celebration. I want to read from John chapter 12, verse 12, so that we can understand where we are in the church calendar, what's happening. Jesus has uh, made His way to Jerusalem, and He has begun preparing the way. And we read this in chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast this is for Passover, a large crowd is there for Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So here's this great scene of Jesus who has been for about three years engaged in ministry throughout the land of Judea, And as the time of his ministry begins to draw to a close, he comes to Jerusalem very intentionally. And as he arrives in Jerusalem, he enters Jerusalem to this great celebration. The crowds who have heard of his miracles congregate outside of the city gates and grab branches from the trees to lay in front of him to to make a path for him, a red carpet, so to speak, For the arrival of the king, who comes in the traditional manner of Jewish kings, riding on a lowly donkey into the city. It's a contrast from the kingdoms around them where the the great kings would come riding on on their best chariot or on their strongest and biggest horse. Here comes the king of Israel in humility riding on a donkey. And I love what's written here from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. Fear not. Christ is our king. Behold, our king is here. It's interesting that as we continue in our series in the book of Acts, that as it's Palm Sunday today, the day that we celebrate Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, we happen to be looking at a parallel passage in the book of Acts where Paul is entering Jerusalem. After the conclusion of his ministry, and Paul, we've been learning over the, over the last several months of Paul's missionary journeys throughout the entire world, and as Paul is finishing up his ministry throughout the entire world, he turns his face towards Jerusalem. And last week, we were able to uh, hear from uh, Pastor John as he told us of, of Paul's great farewell to the Ephesian elders. Paul knows he's going to Jerusalem, and he he takes one last opportunity to talk to the elders that he has spent so much time with in Ephesus, and he gives them instructions before he goes. But I love what he says in, in Acts chapter 20, verses 22. He says this, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in my ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." that is the mind that Paul has as he is going to Jerusalem. He knows persecution awaits. He knows this is the last time he is going to see these Ephesian elders, but he's willing to go and give his life. He's willing to go to give his life. On the way there, as we take a look at Acts 21, and we are going to be covering just a ton of verses today, so we're going to take a a real 30,000-foot view. But as we look at Acts 21, we see that Paul begins to journey towards Jerusalem, and as he's on his way, everybody tells him not to go. Don't go. As a matter of fact, as, as Paul is making his way to Jerusalem, he stops in the city of Caesarea, and as he's there, he's staying with a man by the name of Philip the Evangelist, and a prophet comes to see him. And this prophet enters the home, and he begins to prophesy. And what he does is he, there's this very interesting scene where he takes off Paul's belt. And as he takes off Paul's belt, he, he binds his own arms, and he binds his legs together, and he tells Paul, he says, just as I am binding myself with your belt, the men in Jerusalem, are gonna bind the owner of this belt. And all of his friends hear this, those who are with him hear this, and they beg him not to go. But Paul is unyielding, he's unpersuaded, and he says this in Acts 21:13. He says, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. "'For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus.' And since He would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, "'Let the will of the Lord be done.'" This is one of those moments in the text where Luke himself, who's with him, breaks that third wall you know, you've seen those, those TV shows or the movie where the character suddenly kind of looks out at the audience and, and has his little moment where he talks directly to the audience, breaking that third wall in that medium, and here we kind of get a little bit of the same thing. Luke doesn't want him to go either. Luke, his friend, doesn't want him to go to Jerusalem. He's been begging him not to go. But with Paul's earnestness to go to Jerusalem, he says, even I stopped begging him not to go. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Here's the point I want you to get from this. Here's the point. The church is willing to give everything in service to Christ. The church is willing to give everything in service to Christ. Now, what I hope to accomplish this morning is to help you to understand why why is that statement true? Why is the church willing to give everything for the cause of Christ? Why is Paul so willing to give even his life? I'll have to answer that question this morning. See, Paul is greeted warmly when he arrives at Jerusalem. And after he arrives there, he, he, he's greeted by his brothers. Everybody's excited that he's there. Just like Jesus was when he entered in Jerusalem. But Paul meets with James, the brother of Jesus, and the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And James tells Paul, he says, look, rumors have been spread about you because of your time with the Gentiles. Rumors have been spread that you have been speaking against the law. And there are many Jewish brothers here who also believe in the gospel, But they are offended by these rumors that you're saying the law is not necessary anymore, that it's no good, that you've been speaking against the law. They're offended by that. So, James advises him, why don't you show them that you don't have anything against the law? Now, this is a real kind of touchy point here because Paul has taught clearly that the law is not necessary for salvation, and so he's taught clearly that Gentiles do not need to keep the Jewish law in order to be saved. But Paul has also taught clearly that when he's with the Gentiles, to the Gentiles, he's a Gentile. He acts like one of them. He treats. The, he, he he follows their general customs. He does what he can not to offend their sensibilities. But when he's with the Jews, he has no problem being a Jew. And if their sensibilities, if their consciences are, are, you know, if they believe that they should keep the old Jewish customs, he's going to do that as well. His mission is not to change the culture, his mission is to preach the gospel. And so, he hears this advice of James, and he says, and he agrees. He says, okay, what should I do? And James advises him, look, we have, we have some men here, and I want you to go through this rite of purification. And in verse uh, 23 and 24, he says, James tells him this, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what has been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. So, he tells Paul, he's like, look, take these men, go to the temple, go through this rite of purification with them so that the brothers here whose consciences are held captive by the law to some degree will know that you're not out there completely speaking against the law, but that you also follow these customs. And so, Paul agrees, and he goes, and he does this thing. And for a while, everything goes well. For a while, everything goes well until Paul is recognized. And we see the, uh, the events as they unfold here in Acts 21, verses 27 through 28. When the seven days were almost completed the Jews from Asia. Now, who who are the Jews from Asia? As we've been talking about over the last several weeks, Paul has been on missionary journeys throughout Asia. He's been going to Philippi. He has been going to Corinth, to Ephesus, to all of Asia Minor, and he has been preaching the gospel in all of these cities, oftentimes in the synagogue. And usually when he does this, it raises the hackles of many who do not like what he is preaching. And they will beat him, they will throw him out of the city, they will stone him, they will try to have him arrested, they will follow him from place to place to try to get him to leave. And here as he's in Jerusalem, some of those Jews happen to be visiting also. And when they see him in the temple they call him out. So, after seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. So, they stir up a crowd in the temple against Paul, saying, this is the guy who's saying you shouldn't follow the law. This is the guy who is claiming that the temple is going to be destroyed. That's what Paul's doing, and they stir up this crowd. And in the midst of this turmoil, as this crowd begins to to gather around Paul and to hear these accusations, they begin to beat Paul, and they throw him out of the temple. And Paul is surrounded by this angry mob who wants to kill him. Fortunately for Paul, the Roman tribune over the city hears that an angry mob has gathered. And he immediately dispatches troops to put down the riot. And when they arrive on the scene, they realize that the whole focus of this riot is this man, Paul. And so they arrest him. And they can't understand exactly what the allegations are against him So, the tribune orders him to be brought into the barracks. And as Paul explains to the tribune who he is, Paul asks the tribune, he says, please, let me have an opportunity to defend myself. Give me an opportunity to defend myself before the crowd. Let me address the crowd, my brothers. I am a Jew just like them. Let me address them. So, Paul is on trial, and he's about to give his testimony, his defense. Now, before we look at his defense, what I want to do now is, is give you some parallels here. I want to point out some parallels between what Paul is going through here and what Jesus went through. As we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, I want us to look at the similarities between Jesus And Paul. At the end of Jesus' ministry, as we've already discussed, he turned his face deliberately to go to Jerusalem, just as Paul has turned his ministry towards Jerusalem. Jesus deliberately heads to his death. He knows he's going there to die. And many tell him, even Peter tells him, by no means you're not going to die. Do not go there. And just as Paul had to do, he says, no, stop telling me that. I know what my mission is. I know where I'm going. Jesus enters Jerusalem to triumphant cheers of the crowd who hail Him as the King. Paul is greeted warmly when he arrives. Jesus spends a week from the time He enters the city to the time of His trial and crucifixion. Just as Paul spends one week purifying himself, there's a plot that arises to kill Jesus. Just as there is a plot that arises from amongst the Jews to kill Paul, their own people want to kill them and both endure a trial before Roman authorities. There's something about this that makes it perfect for me to teach. I'm a lawyer in my day job, and I love trials. I remember many years ago when I was in high school, the trial of the century, the O.J. Simpson trial. And I remember being captivated by it at the time. There are so many great Things so many great iconic images that come out of that trial. I remember very clearly watching the news as a white Bronco was driving down the interstate and, and wondering what it was all about. Not quite understanding, but remembering how interested everybody was that this iconic American football player was being charged with murder. I remember... That famous scene from the trial where O.J. Simpson is standing before the jury with a glove on, trying to get it over his hands, and later during the closing statements, his attorney giving the famous words, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, right? It was the trial of the century, and everybody was plugged in, was was tuned in, was looking at this trial, at this, at this event, wondering what was going to happen. One of the most incredible moments for me was, I remember walking into the cafeteria at my high school one day for lunch. And it was different from all the other days because everybody was crowded around one table in the cafeteria. And somebody had brought a radio. It was the students and the professor. Somebody had brought a radio into the, into the cafeteria. And as I walked over to kind of figure out what was going on, I realized that they were listening as the verdict was about to be read. And I remember very clearly that as the verdict was read and as the verdict came back not guilty, there was a split in the crowd. There was an obvious split in the crowd as as half the people kind of hung their heads in, in complete disbelief. And others were cheering. It was the trial of the century, and I don't think I've heard of any trial before that or since that that has had that much publicity. But if O.J. Simpson was the trial of the century, Christ's trial before Pontius Pilate is the trial of all time. It is the trial of all time. And before we understand Paul's defense, as he talks to the Jews in Jerusalem, I think it's very important that we understand Jesus' defense at his trial. What was his defense? How does Jesus defend himself at his trial? In John chapter 18, we get a, the best recording Of this trial before Pilate. And as we're reading of this, it's important to understand that Pilate is there and he doesn't understand what the problem is. He doesn't understand why these men are there before him this morning accusing this man. And here's the response he gets from the Jewish leaders in John chapter 18, verse 30. Here's here's what sets this up. He asked them, what accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So, Pilate has this problem here. He he doesn't understand what this man is accused of having done. And so, he comes in to Jesus, and we read this in verse 33. So, Pilate entered his headquarters and called to Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Apparently, he had heard that from these Jewish leaders. And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate doesn't understand what this man is accused of having done. What are the charges? And Jesus answers him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Do you get Jesus' defense here? Do you get His defense? Well, neither does Pilate. He doesn't hear it. He doesn't understand Jesus' defense. So, Pilate Pilate asks him again. He says this, So, you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I have been born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? You see, Pilate does not first understand this man's own defense of himself. He doesn't hear it. So, he keeps asking him questions. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And he asks this iconic question that we get here that I think is is so important where it's placed here, what is truth? You see, no sooner does Pilate ask that question than does he go out to the crowd and declare the truth? I love this moment because in this moment, Pilate is the judge. Pilate is the judge, and he is the one responsible, at the end of the day, from a human perspective, of declaring what is true. Of passing judgment here. That's his human responsibility. And he asked this question what is true? What is the truth? He doesn't know, but the moment he utters it, it says this After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find. No guilt in him. No court in human history has ever made a better judgment. I've been in quite a few trials, been in front of quite a few finders of facts, people who are supposed to render judgment on cases. And usually, as we all know, each side comes in with their version of the facts. And the person there who's supposed to render judgment is supposed to decide between these two parties. And usually, they come to a conclusion that isn't consistent with either of them. They have their own version of the facts. They do their best to find out what is true, but they fail most of the time. And maybe they're closer than either other part of the parties are, but usually they get something wrong. They weren't there. They don't know. They don't know what the truth is. And so, when judgment is rendered, it's usually rendered in some aspect incorrectly. And here Pilate goes out, and he knows, I don't know what the truth is, and he says something that is absolutely true. There is no guilt in Him. This is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And He says to the crowd after He does this, He goes out to the crowd and He says, I find no guilt in Him. And He says, you know what? I have a custom during this time of the year, during the Passover, where I deliver over to you as a favor one criminal that I hold somewhere in my dungeons, And so, I'm going to give you a choice today. I'm going to deliver back over to you this man who I find no guilt in, or I'm going to give you Barabbas, a robber, a criminal, someone known to you as someone who is a blight on our society. He gives them the choice. He gives them the choice. It's really interesting and fascinating when you look at the character of Barabbas in this story. Tradition has it that his given name was also Jesus, Jesus bar Abbas, Jesus son of the father. You have two men to choose from. The crowd can pick whoever they want They've got the sinless, the guiltless son of God, and they've got Barabbas, the criminal that everybody knows is a criminal, and they choose Barabbas. They choose Barabbas. And Pilate is beside himself. He can't believe it. He had assumed they would pick Jesus, this this person in whom he could find no guilt. And so he goes back in, and in chapter 19 and verse 1, we read this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! and they struck him with their hands. Pilate, at this point, because of the fervent hatred of the crowd for this man, assumes he must have done something. And so, what was the classic Roman way of obtaining a confession? You beat it out of the person. And so, Pilate beats Jesus for two reasons. One is because maybe this will appease the bloodlust of the crowd, And two, in an attempt to gain a confession, or at least a defense, maybe the man will defend himself in the midst of this beating. But as the prophet Isaiah says about this man, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth jesus said nothing he's beaten and he confesses to nothing he's mocked and he doesn't speak back he gives them no cause to find guilt in him and so pilate now after beating Jesus, brings him out to the crowd and shows them the work that he has done. Look, I've beaten him for you. I've tried to get it out of him. But he says this. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again, truth. Truth. The true judgment of Pilate. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. I have a favorite painting. I'll uh, show it up here on the screen. This is a famous painting by Antonio Cesare. It's called Behold the Man. And it's my favorite painting for several reasons. First, I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful painting of of this event. But for me, as a lawyer, as I've mentioned, it is that painting that captures the greatest moment in human legal history. It's the greatest moment in human legal history. Pilate, the judge, casts his verdict and says, I find no guilt in him. Behold the man. This is the man. And he says that in a way that I think that there's a divine irony going on here. Pilate's just pointing him out as as a man. But we are to recognize Christ as the man. As the man the man that humanity is supposed to be. He is the archetype of all men, the image bearer of God. Behold the man. It's the highest moment in human legal history, the moment that, above all, makes me be proud To be an attorney, unfortunately, it is immediately followed by the darkest, by the lowest moment in legal history. In verse 16, I'm sorry, in verse 6, we read this after Pilate presents Jesus. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. The jury has spoken, right? The jury has spoken. Here is the spotless, the sinless Son of God in whom there is no fault kill him. The story doesn't quite in there. Pilate tries several more times to set Jesus free. He tries several more times to figure out a way to let Jesus go. He is disturbed that the crowd wants this man's blood so much, He comes to Jesus at one point and he says, he says this, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Give me your defense. Tell me why I should let you go. Help me. And Jesus answers him, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. And so, Pilate, at a loss, with a client who won't even mount his own defense, or with a subject who won't even mount his own defense, tries one more time, to get the crowd to let him go, even saying, this is your king, I'll give him back to you, he can be your king. But when the crowd persists and calls for his crucifixion, Pilate delivers him over. The judge announces his final judgment that this man, in whom he could find no guilt, should be put to death. See, Jesus gives no defense. Jesus gives no defense before Pilate. He gives no defense at his trial because his defense will be his resurrection. His defense will be that death could not hold him. He will prove all that he needs to prove when he is raised from the dead." Let's go back to Acts 22, because here Paul is about to give his defense. He's about to launch into his defense. He's at the same point in his trial, and he asks the tribute, let me make a defense let me speak to the crowd." And the tribune says, okay, make your defense. And what does Paul say? What is Paul's defense? Paul's defense is the resurrection of Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ. Paul's defense is Jesus. He starts by saying, I was once just like all of you. I was once just like all of you. I am a Jew. I am a Jew of Jews. I was trained by the preeminent Jewish teacher of our age, Gamaliel. I am a Pharisee. I was of the strictest order of our nation. I persecuted Christians. I committed them to prison. I was there at the stoning of Stephen. I was just like you. But on the way to Damascus, I beheld a man. I saw him. I saw him. I saw the resurrected Christ. And that's my defense. And after I saw him, I went and met with a man named Ananias in Damascus, and here's what he told me. He said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth, and you will be a witness for Him to everyone of what you have seen and what you have heard. Paul's defense before this crowd is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he will be a witness to that resurrection. Here he is standing before that crowd at his trial, giving his testimony, being a witness to what he has seen. He explains to them, I had wanted to come to Jerusalem earlier. Matter of fact, right after I saw Christ, I wanted to come right back here. But Christ Himself sent me to the world. He sent me to the Gentiles that I might proclaim the gospel amongst them. But I always knew I had to come back here. That's his defense. Paul's defense is the same defense that Christ gives. It's the resurrection. It's the only defense that Christians have and that Christians need. See, the church is willing to give everything in the service of Christ because it has beheld the man. It has seen His glory. That's why the church is willing to give everything. It has seen Him. Now, when the crowd hears this, they're not happy. They hear this, and it says this in in verse 22 of chapter 22, up to this word they listen to Him. Then they raised their voices and they said, Away from such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. The crowd does not accept it. But it doesn't matter. As the chapter goes on, the Roman tribune, like Pilate, wondering what is going on with this crowd. What has this man done? Certainly, he must have done something absolutely terrible to have this crowd worked up. So, the Roman tribute ties him to a pole, calls for his soldier to come in and begin the examination process, the beating of Paul. And Paul says, wait a minute, you're not allowed to beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. And as soon as these Tribune hears that. He, he realizes, no, I can't beat a Roman citizen without cause. And he realizes he himself is not a natural-born Roman citizen, that he had to buy into citizenship with Rome, and that Paul technically outranks him in the social structure, and so he lays off Paul. And Paul escapes the beating that Jesus receives for now. But for the rest of the book of Acts, we see Paul on a journey to his final destination where he will stand trial in Rome, where he will teach and preach to kings and emperors, where he will bear witness to the whole world of what he has seen. But Paul has given his defense. Here's my question for us today as we close. Have you beheld the man? Have you beheld the man? Here's a question. Why are you here at C3? Why do you come to church? Those are important questions in this season of our church life as we prepare to bring in a new lead pastor. What brings you here? We are seeking now someone to help lead our church to fix our problem. But I declare to you today, we have already found that man. Behold the man. Behold the man. If you are here for John, or for me, or for Scott, or because your friends go here, none of those are bad, but they're not enough. We will disappoint you. We will fail, but behold the man, he will not. I have been in ministry for about five years, and over that five years, I have talked to many people who have both come to this church and who have left this church, and one thing that I'm certain of as I talk with them coming and going both ways is that people are searching for something. People are searching for something. Usually, I ask them, well, well, why did you come here to C3? And they proceed to tell me, well, we were looking for something that we didn't find at our old church. And as people leave, I ask them, well, what do you, what do you, why are you leaving? And they'll usually tell me something that they did not find here at C3. And those are fine. A lot of them are very legitimate things that I wish we had and that I'm sure other churches wish that they had. Those are, none of those are bad things, but I often hear about what people did not find here or what they are looking for over here. But none of those are enough. I don't care if you're looking for a great kids ministry. I don't care if you're looking for a great worship experience. I don't care if you're looking for really good preaching. I don't care if you're looking for relationships or friendships. Those are not enough. Behold the man. Let me tell you what it is you're looking for. I can give it to you right here. Behold the man. Let me bring out one last point. Behold the bride of that man. You see, when people come to a church, one of the things they're looking for besides Him, maybe they just don't know it, is they're looking for His bride. They're looking for a church that loves Him. In our culture, we live in a culture that maybe it's prime Value is liberty. Liberty to be set free from every kind of, of thing, all right? We want to be set free. and there's, there's one place in humanity that we kind of put aside that quest for liberty. It's, it's common in our culture to, to It's under attack, but it's common in our culture to kind of put aside that sense of liberty for one institution that that still remains, and it's the institution of marriage. And I'll often bring this up, and I've done a couple marriages, I haven't done a lot, but I've done a couple marriages, but I always bring this up to the couple as I'm doing their counseling, and I tell them, think about how remarkable this is, that this person has said to you, I'm giving myself to you. In a culture that wants our freedom, that wants the ability to do what we want to do, we enter into, willingly, into a relationship that says, I'm giving myself to somebody. I'm theirs. That's what the church does with Christ. We hold nothing back, but we give ourselves totally to Him. And by doing that, it is the only way that we can give ourselves totally to one another. And that's what people are looking for when they come to a church. And we need to have that clearly in our minds as we bring in someone to lead us here. That our first love is not here. It's here. Let's remember that this week especially as we prepare for Easter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your grace for showing us yourself, forgiving us yourself. Lord, I pray for this church as we enter into this season of our church life where we are looking for leadership, where we are looking for a direction from You, where we need vision about how to move forward. Lord, I pray that our vision will always be turned towards Christ first, towards Your Son, First. May we love Him first and best, and through Him, love everything else that you have called us to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So every week here at Christ Community Church, we behold the man and the act of communion. We remember, especially this week as we prepare for Good Friday. His sacrifice for us, His death for us, where He proves how much He loves us, and we await the Sunday where He proves His power over everything else, that He's worthy, that He's guiltless, that He needs no defense. And so, come this morning. If you know Him, if you have beheld the man, come and take and remember the man and what He has done for us.
1: in response with us. So I lift my hands to you. I lift my heart to you. Refresh me. Oh God, refresh me. And I raise my weakness high. In it you're glorified Refresh me Oh God, refresh me Sing that chorus, I lift my hands I lift my hands to you I lift my heart to you Refresh me Oh God, refresh me And I raise my weakness high In it you're glorified Refresh Oh God, refresh me. Oh. You are my shelter from the hurricane. You are my shelter from the hurricane. You are my rock. You Let the river flow, let the river flow down In it you'll glorify, refresh me,
2: oh God, refresh me, oh. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for refreshing us this morning with your gospel. Thank you for sending your son to live our lives for us, to die our death and your eyes for our rightness before you. God, we thank you for him in your name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. At this time in our service, we're going to transition with the morning offering. So let me invite the team forward. And as the basket comes down across your row, you can put in a communication card if you have that filled out for us uh, or a tither offering. And uh, as far as announcements go this morning, I've got a few of them for you. We are Uh, Still continuing, this is the last Sunday for our Easter egg uh, collection. So if you have any of those, they go over there on the corner next to the purple bin uh, where all the Easter eggs are. And uh, if if you did bring anything or you intend to drop anything off later this week, just make sure that it doesn't have peanuts in it uh, for everyone these days. So we want to make sure and be careful about that. Second announcement, oh, sorry about this, for the, for the Easter, I forgot, you have cards next to you, cards just like this. This card is for you, but it's mainly for someone else, okay? So if you can take this card and then pass that around to someone at your work or your neighbor uh, and invite them. Then that's a fantastic thing to do on Easter Sunday to invite other people to celebrate with us the resurrection. So feel free to take one, two, or ten of these if you can find them, and uh, and throw them out to people. Uh, another announcement is right now media. We put this up from time to time, but we have as a church a subscription with right now media, which means that anyone in the church gets use of this service for free and uh, it has a library of all sorts of Christian resources on it, sermons, lectures, videos, and if you haven't signed up for that, then feel free to do so at the link uh, in your bulletin. It's a uh,